cooperating with my mic, so might have all kinds of fun happening. Um, but today we are continuing our final um, series today where we've been talking about our mission statement again is Mission Point, going back to the beginning of follow Jesus, share life, change the world, and have been exploring those things and digging through them through the lens of the very end of the book of Acts. Um, and so two weeks ago, Amy tackled Follow Jesus, Steph shared on Share Life. Last week, if you missed either of those, I know that we say this all of the time, but actually go back and listen. Like, they were really good, and they were really encouraging to me. So go back and listen if you didn't get a chance to hear either of those. Um, and so today, that means we are picking up with change the world. Um, so looking how at the very end, the very end of Acts, looking at how Paul um, thought about changing the world. Um, recap of where we are in the story of Acts and in Paul's journey um, around Acts 25, things kind of come to a head. Um, at this point, Paul has been preaching the good news of Jesus um, Jews don't like that because Jesus wasn't the Messiah they were expecting, blah, blah, blah. There's other Jews who don't like that because he's preaching this to the Gentiles and they're not the chosen people. And so all kinds of people are mad at Paul, um, not making friends. And around Acts 25, this comes to a head where the Jews seize Paul and want him um, punished and put to death. And so he's brought to the governor of the region at that time, um, stands trial. The governor says he's not doing anything that warrants punishment or death, um, but wants to appease the Jews because his role is to keep peace and govern that area where it's mostly Jews under Roman occupation. And so he wants to appease the Jews. And so he leaves Paul in prison even after he decided Paul didn't do anything. Um, and so Paul is in jail for two years until that governor is succeeded by a new governor, and so he has to go stand trial again. Lo and behold, that governor decides the same thing. He, you haven't done anything that warrants punishment, imprisonment, or death. Um, but he also is interested in appeasing the Jews. And at that point, the Jews start asking him, well, will you send him back to Jerusalem? He's in Caesarea at this point. We send him back to Jerusalem so that he can stand trial before us. And so Governor um, Festus says, Paul, would you go back to Jerusalem and stand trial before the Jews? Paul's like, well, you just said that I didn't do anything. That's kind of lame. Um, but he's also wise to the fact that the Jews are trying to do this so that they can ambush him, condemn him, and put him to death um, in their own tribunal. And so um, Paul, even though he's been acquitted formally, he um, appeals his case to Caesar. Um, and so says, well, I've always wanted to go to Rome. He's been looking for a way to get to Rome, and so maybe this is my way. And so he appeals his case that he's been acquitted of to Caesar, and so is put on a ship um, with other prisoners to be sent to Rome. And that's kind of where we picked up. Amy talked about the shipwreck that they experienced and Paul, how Paul kind of led through that as an unlikely leader because he was following Jesus and people looked to him and trusted to him because he had the wisdom of Jesus um, on his side. And then because they were shipwrecked, um, they end up having to kind of like get to Rome with all of these prisoners by like a winding about way. And along the way, they encounter all kinds of what we would call people of peace and different encouraging communities 
on their way, and that's what Steph talked about last week, about how those people were really crucial in, in sustaining and encouraging Paul and keeping him in the fight, even as he's imprisoned. <coughs> and so now, finally, Paul has finally gotten to Rome. He's, a, he's arrived in Rome, and he's put under house arrest. And this is where we pick up in our passage today. Um, so we're going to be in Acts 28, starting in verse 17, all the way to the end um, of Acts. This is what we read. Three days later, he, so Paul, called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But the Jews, the Jews objected, and I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, well, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. And so essentially Paul kind of like gathers the leaders, um, in, the Jewish leaders in Rome, again, knowing that most Jews, most places along the way have not always been super friendly to him. They don't like that he's preaching the good news of Jesus, and they don't like that he's including the Gentiles. He's making people mad, but he still is kind of bringing the Jews to him, saying, I don't know what you've heard about me. I don't know what you've heard about my beliefs. He's kind of trying to, like, fish around, like, like how much of a challenge is this Jewish thing going to be here in Rome? And the Jewish leaders reply, well, we actually haven't heard anything. We don't know much. No one's kind of, like, gossiping back and forth around in Rome about you, but we do want to know what you think. We want to hear about your views. And so here's an invitation for him, wide open, to share the good news of Jesus um, with the local Jewish leaders. Reading on, they arranged, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day, and they came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God, from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through, the, through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. 
Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. After he said this, the Jews left, arguing vigorously among themselves. So leave it to Paul. He's like, got some rapport going. They're like, oh yeah, we haven't heard anything bad against you. They come over, spend a full day like learning from him, and they're about to go. And he's just like, let's just blow this whole thing up <laughs> and drop one of the most controversial passages and say, you're just like the people of Israel back then who ended up getting put into exile because they didn't get what God was up to. And it doesn't matter if you don't get it because the Gentiles will get it. Subtle, Paul. Nice. <laughs> Seemed like he was trying to make friends, but apparently not. <laughs> but reading on, then it says, For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He continued to proclaim the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And there ends our story of Paul. And so, kind of wrap it up there a little bit nicely, but... Man, did he just like, true, true Paul fashion. Let's just start a fight. And so we're going um, to spend some time kind of digging into a little bit that Isaiah passage that, that Paul quotes from Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10. Um, this is like an aside, has nothing to do, but I think it's interesting, so this is free for you all. Um, the language that Paul uses here as he's quoting Isaiah is actually a bit different than if you go back to Isaiah and read the exact language there. Now, we could do literally like months of digging into why this is and like the theology and hermeneutics behind all of that, but that's not what this message is. But generally kind of free little token for you, what is happening most of the time when a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament passage and the language doesn't match, usually at this point the New Testament authors are using what is called the Septuagint. And so the Hebrew Bible at this point has already been translated into Greek because most pe people are speaking Greek at this point. And so the first translation of the Old Testament scriptures is, called, is what we call the Septuagint. And so it's a Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. And so most of the New Testament authors, if the language is different, it's not that they just got it wrong. It's because they're using the Septuagint, which is a translation already. And so that's why it's different. So anyway, we could dig more into that, but... We're just going to kind of generally say we're going to use the same language to the, today and not get into the complexities of that. Um, but this Isaiah 6 passage is one that is, it's one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. Because not only do we see it here, we see it quoted directly by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and a pretty direct allusion, almost a quote, by John. And so this one shows up a handful of times. And so anytime you see an Old Testament passage showing up over and over, it's important to kind of go back and look at, well, why is it being used in all of these different contexts? How is it different? How is it the same? Again, that could be months and months of digging into. So we're going to do a very cursory look at that. 
Going back to its original context in Isaiah, this passage shows up in Isaiah's calling narrative. So we have five, verse, five um, chapters at the beginning of Isaiah of essentially saying, of, of God saying, I'm mad, punishment, judgment, destruction is coming for the people of Israel. And then chapter six comes along and God says, hey, Isaiah, I'm picking you to be the one that gets to deliver this news to all of them. Um, so it's a really fun calling. It's the kind that everyone really, really wants. Um, he's quite pumped and doesn't fight it at all um, when he gets that message. <coughs> but judgment and punishment is coming um, because of their disobedient, but there's specific charges, there's specific things that the people of Israel are doing and are not doing at this point that God is kind of like charging them with, so to speak, at the beginning of Israel. And at this point, like, there's some seedy stuff happening amongst the people of God. There could have been a number of things that like God pinpointed, but this is what God highlights. He charges Israel with not seeking justice for the oppressed, for not defending the oppressed, for not caring for the widows and the orphans, and for exploiting their poor. And so there's kind of this message within there of God telling the people of Israel that they are showing them that they're consistently missing the heart of their role as God's covenant people. From the beginning, it was always about what Jesus ends up boiling it down to, loving God and being in relationship with God and loving your neighbor as yourself, especially the least of these among you. That was always, always the point. And the people of God over and over through the Old Testament miss it. They keep on missing it. And so when God says this passage, reads Isaiah, says Isaiah 6 to Isaiah, saying, they will be out there are ever hearing but never understanding. They are seeing but not perceiving. He's saying, this is always what I've been doing. This is what I've been saying from the beginning, and they still don't get it. They don't see with their eyes. They don't hear with their ears. They don't understand with their hearts. They were the chosen people of God, and they missed the heart of God. And so in the Gospels, when we see this passage quoted and used, again, it's nuanced in each of them, and we could dive too much into that today, but generally kind of what is happening is that, again, Israel as a people miss what God is up to that Jesus is saying this to the crowds as he's teaching and saying this to the disciples, and he's saying that there are people who are going to miss him as the Messiah, and that there are people who still are misunderstanding what the good news of the kingdom of God is all about. He even says that this is why he speaks in parables, so it will be clear those who actually get it, the people not, who hear, ju not just the people who hear it, but the people who understand it. Not just the people who see it, but the people who actually perceive it and understand the heart of the kingdom of God. And so again, it's the people who are waiting for a Messiah who 
who missed the Messiah, those who had studied and understood what the kingdom of God should be about that misunderstood the kingdom. And then again here in Acts, we see this passage again. And Paul has just shared the good news of Jesus. And it says, some believed, but some didn't. And some understood that the good news was not just for the Jews, but some still missed it. And so the commonality, every time this passage, this Isaiah 6 passage kind of shows up, the commonality across the board is kind of, is that the people of God consistently are missing and misunderstanding what God is actually up to in the world. The people of God continue to miss and misunderstand where God is actually moving in the world. And specifically in this context, they miss it not because they don't think that God will move in the world. It's precisely because they have expectations that they miss it. They have very clear expectations of how they think God should show up, of how they are expecting God to move in a way that makes sense in their own frameworks and their own worldviews from their histories of studying. And because it's not what they were expecting, they missed it when it turns out at the heart of it, God actually really does care if you care for the poor, oppressed, and exploited amongst you. And because they weren't expecting it, they missed it when God shows up as a tiny human defenseless baby. And because they weren't expecting it, they missed that God came through Jesus to preach about a kingdom that wasn't about politics, but is about human flourishing and restoration for all time. They missed it. They were ready, and they were watching, and they were waiting but because they were holding so tightly to their own understanding and expectations of how all of this would roll out, they didn't see it when it actually happened. They heard, but they didn't understand. They saw, but they didn't perceive. And it's interesting that this warning and condemnation to the Jews in Rome is coming from Paul. Because let's remember, Paul really missed it. He missed the mark hard at the beginning. He doubled down on his own worldview, his own beliefs, and how he had expected the Messiah to show up. As a Pharisee, he was waiting for the Messiah. As a Pharisee, he knew the scriptures in and out and should have understood that from the beginning, God's plan was always about the inclusion of all people. But as a Pharisee, his framework had been built up and supported for so long and was so tightly fixed that he again had, mi had missed where God was actually moving. So what Paul ended up coming to understand is that in order for him to change the world, 
in order for him to bring the good news of Jesus to all people everywhere, he first needed to change his worldview. He had to expand his worldview and his beliefs to include a Messiah that didn't look like the king or savior he had been expecting. He had to expand his worldview and his beliefs to understand that God's ultimate movement was towards all people and not just the people of Israel. To take the good news of Jesus to the whole world, Paul needed his view of the world to expand. And like Paul, in our own lives, well, I'll just say in my own life, I'll put it on me, I think our own limited perspectives limit how we expect and believe God can and will move in the world. It's not bad. Like This isn't a condemnation. It's just part of humanity. It's hard. It's hard to have your worldview, your deeply embedded core beliefs poked at and challenged. But if we are to change the world as we so boldly claim that we can and will do, if we are to change the world, we may first need God to change our worldview too to expand our view of the world, to be big enough to include everything he's doing. When I think of this, I think of the story of Susan Cottrell. Susan gave a pretty powerful TED Talk a few years ago um, where her and her husband and her family were a part of a very fundamentalist, conservative, evangelical church. And at this point in their life, their oldest daughter came out as gay and decided that she was going to live as a gay person in the world. And because of their beliefs, because of their core values and some of the things that were fundamental to them, they entertained the idea of disowning her. Their church community around them said the only way forward is for you to disown her. That's what following Jesus and sharing life looked like for them at that point. But they made the bold decision to stay in relationship with their daughter, which shouldn't be a bold decision. Can we just say that? Like, that should be the easiest decision. Like, you're my kid, I love you. If as parents we're meant to like, replicate the heart of God, like, you're my kid, I love you. That's it, period, the end. That should be it. But they ended up losing everything. They got kicked out of their faith community and the life that they knew. But this sparked a journey for them where they, they came to learn and rethink how, how God thought about gay people and the love that God had for them. And they went on this journey to learn these horrifying, devastating statistics where their experience was not uncommon. Where in the U.S. right now, it's estimated that between 40 and 50% of homeless youth in our country identify as LGBTQ and are homeless because they have been disowned by their families. 
or learned about things that suicide is the second leading cause of death among people ages 10 to 24, which is horrifying in and of itself. But LGBTQ youth are five times more likely to attempt suicide than their heterosexual counterparts. And so regardless of what you think theologically, we can all look at that and say, that is not okay. That is not kingdom. That is not the love of God. And we should be deeply troubled by that. And this led Susan to start an organization called Freed Hearts. And her and her family counsel and support not only the LGBTQ community, but also their families with the goal of helping parents always say yes to their kids. And they show up at pride events, offering free mom hugs, doing nothing else, but they wear shirts that say free mom hug for this community of people who has been disowned by their families and just needs a mom to love them. This community of people that today on Mother's Day, like you were talking about, Steph, is so heartbreaking for so many of them because they loved their mom and their mom disowned them. And they show up and they give free mom hugs to this community that just needs family. In order for her to change all of the lives and touch all of the lives that she is, in order for Susan Cottrell to change the world, she first had to change her worldview. And it was costly. It cost her a lot. And it's still continuing to cost her a lot. Or I think of a woman named Rachel Held Evans. I'm probably going to get a little bit emotional. She um, was a brilliant author, writer, speaker um, who tragically died last week, was 37, freak thing. Um, where Rachel grew up as a young woman in the South. And everything that she learned in her early development was about what women should be and what women, women were not. And there were these very clear roles of who she was meant to be and who she was not meant to be as a woman. And she grew up and had those worldviews evolved and became one of the most powerful writers, still from within the context of Christianity, from within the church, that set women free all around the world. And after her death, you saw just how far reaching that impact was and how many women she empowered to lead and to become who they were created to be. In order for her to have that impact, to change the world, to impact the world in the way that she did, she first had to change her worldview and perspective of who she was as a woman. Or I think of Mission Point. I think of Mission Point and how each and every one of you here has boldly asked really hard questions with us and have explored some controversial issues. Starting with, but not limited to, like one of our core questions of, does church have to look like or feel like the only way we've ever experienced it before? 
might there be another way of being the church? And while this has been a really, really fun journey, I know that it hasn't always been easy. This has been, I've watched you all be stretched in ways that are uncomfortable and painful at times. Because while it's really easy to like say something like really like quippy, like if you want to change the world, change your worldview, it's like easy to say that, but that's actually really hard to do. And it can be really painful. And I think about one of the times that I encountered a, a shift in worldview for one of the first times was after I, um, was when I studied abroad in Cambodia. And there was like this process of coming back where my perspective and expectations of how I viewed and engaged in the world had changed so much, but then I was coming back to a world that looked exactly the same. And it's disorienting. And all of a sudden your world feels different and you don't, and your body feels different and you don't know what to do. And from, I ended up having like, like legit meltdown, full on meltdown in the shampoo art aisle at Target. Like, started weeping, just like set all my stuff down on the ground because of course I didn't have a cart or a basket because you're just gonna get a few things and then it's a full handful. I just threw it all down and I ran out of the store weeping. Um, but it's hard. It's hard to actually do this to, when, when these things are so core to who you are and how you view and engage the world, it's really difficult to have them poked at and called into question. And I think sometimes the Pharisees and the Jews get a bad rep. At least I do. I like look back and be like, how did you miss all of that? How did you miss Jesus? Like you were waiting for the Messiah and you missed Jesus. Like I can so, and like how did you miss that this was always for everyone? I can see it back in Genesis. This was always for everyone. How did you miss that? But when these things are so core and fundamental to how you've developed throughout the world, it's so hard to have those things changed and stretched and poked at. But even though it's hard, I still think that it's crucial. It's crucial that we have the humility, the humility and the courage that it takes to continue to allow God that transforming work in us so that we don't miss where he's moving, so we don't ever miss what he's up to. If we truly want to change the world, are we consistently open to God changing our worldviews? And I look out at you all and I think that you are. I think that we are, even though it's hard, it's uncomfortable, it's sometimes costly. I've had the privilege of watching you all be willingly pushed outside of your comfort zones and be stretched in unexpected ways. I always think back to every time we sing Resurrecting, I think back to um, our stories of triumph on the one Easter Sunday where we heard from some people, how they were allowing God to do that in some really big life-altering ways that weren't easy and still aren't easy. But I've watched you all 
get pushed out of your comfort zones. And I've watched you all be open to the possibility of completely reorienting your world to respond to his movement in it. And so that's my encouragement for you today, that just because we are stopping with Sunday mornings, please don't stop with that important work that you've all been doing. Find ways to continue to challenge yourselves, to have your worldview called into question, to engage in contexts that feel uncomfortable and stretching for you, to make friends with people who aren't different and actually learn what it looks like to listen. And not just defensively, where you have like, while they're like talking and you like are just planning what you're gonna say in response, like actually learning how they view the world, how they see the world, how they experience the world. Because only by doing that will we constantly have our capacity, capacity to see God and experience God move in the world and change the world realized. Thank you for going on this journey with us. Let's pray. Jesus, I do thank you um, for the really courageous ways um, and just looking out at all of these people. Every single person in this room has allowed themselves to be stretched and pulled and poked and prodded and have their perspectives and their expectations uh, challenged um, throughout this journey. Um, we thank you for the ways that they're continuing to be flexible and agile to the movement of your spirit, that they don't get held back ever by um, our very human but limited